I got pretty cranked up a little bit last night. Uh, I want us to grasp and understand what this world around us really is. We grew up in America, and we're used to it. American ways are our ways, and it's hard to sometimes question some of those things because they're such a part of us. But we need to grasp and understand that Satan has ruled the earth since Adam and Eve. Everything in society essentially has gone his way. Now, certain things can seem to be okay, they can seem to be righteous, but always remember that Satan has a way of putting an evil twist on even that which can appear to be good. I mean, some churches and the do-gooder things that they do really are good things, aren't they? And yet there's always a twist that takes them into some form of paganism. And we have to be very, very alert and on our toes, mentally, to be able to discern that which has been twisted a little bit so that it leads us into a wrong way of thinking and acting and doing. Now, some things that are going on in this world are so clearly, obviously wrong that none of us would want to even begin to go there. But other things could appear to be okay. Now, how did Satan approach Christ in the temptation? He was very careful to make it sound godly, to make it sound righteous, to make it appear good and appealing, and something that would be okay for him to do. But he saw through it and quoted the correct scriptures to take Satan's twist out of it. Remember that Satan's ministers can appear as angels of light. They have the capacity to so subtly set things up that they look good. And they can be wrong even though they look pretty good. So it's a very difficult line we walk in trying to determine whether something is something we should be a part of and imbibe of or not. Now, Satan is going to rule this world, and Paul calls it this present evil world, until Christ returns to the earth and binds him a thousand years. So he is in control of society and culture on every continent, every religion, Every form of culture that we have, he has his hand in. Now, I'm not to say that everything that is produced by man, every song, every food, every this, every that, is of Satan the devil. We must be very careful. But we must use our minds and discern between good and evil, and that which would produce the wrong fruits and that which would produce right fruits. So I don't want to 
and just blanket condemn everything, but I need us, we need all of us to understand who is setting the policies. Who is guiding the minds of men, whether it be governments or entertainment or, or literature or schools or whatever it might be? He is behind the system and is tweaking it to destroy. That is his goal and purpose, is to destroy mankind from off the face of the earth. There is a way that really does seem right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. You might look at a situation and say, well, that really is appealing, that really seems right to me, that's what I think I ought to be doing. But you'd better examine it in the light of God's Word to see if it fits there. Because he didn't say twice, Proverbs 14, 26, and 16, 25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death, in vain. Sometimes it really does seem right, what you want to do, to you. It feels right, it feels good, it seems to be the thing that you need, or your family needs, or whatever, at the moment. But always examine everything that you think of doing or endorsing or checking out against the Word of God. Because we cannot trust our emotions. We cannot trust our feelings. We cannot trust our own judgment. That's why this book is so big. You know, Christ boiled it down and said, there's really only two commandments, love me and or love your father and, and love your neighbor. That's what it all comes down to. But there are so many twists and turns and nuances in human conduct and life that it needs a whole big book to give us a whole body of evidence and judgment and wisdom to help us keep those two simple commands that are so difficult to keep. Now, I know I keep talking about wholeheartedness, and I do believe that for the most part, this group of people has been working and is gaining greatly in that direction. How do I know? By my feeling? That isn't good enough. It's by the fruits that you have to make those judgments. Now, what did Christ say? He said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It is a cause and effect. It is a truism. It's something that will always be intrinsically correct. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, we use it in terms of money more. And I do appreciate, and I know God does, that you people are very generous with your offerings. I know things are getting tighter in this society. Prices are going up. Wages are not. Jobs are harder to find. And yet you still give very willingly and very lovingly to God and His purposes and physical offerings. So that tells me your hearts are moving in the right direction. Otherwise, the offering box would be 
a lot smaller than it is. Okay? That's a proof. That shows me. It tells me. And it tells God that your hearts are moving in the right direction. Now, what else do you treasure? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You treasure your time. Well, I say that. How do, how, can, how do we waste so much time when we treasure it? But I guess we treasure it to ourselves so that I can do what I want to do and be comfortable and, and be happy and entertained or whatever. But I see here a people that I think if there were anything we needed done around here and we put out a call, there would be people coming from every direction. It's always that way. There's, I, I think, almost without fail, I could say, if somebody needed something done, I could pick up the phone and call anyone here, and for the most part, most of the time, unless they really had something pressing and say, I really can't do it right now, but they'd say, I could do it tonight or, or whatever. But what I'm saying is the willingness is there. The willingness to give, the willingness to help, the willingness to serve is simply there. In other words, you treasure your time, and you might have a list of things you want done that you'd like to do, but you're willing to forego those to help someone else. And I see that attitude throughout this congregation. So that tells me right there that the time which you treasure, you're willing to give, and that means that the heart is headed to the right place and is already, at least to some degree, in the right place. So the Scripture may yell at us quite a bit, but the Scripture also can be very encouraging. And if we can read those and do an honest, you know, we have to be, give an honest assessment of the things we are doing that are good, as well as an honest assessment of what we're doing that is not so good. It requires both. We need the one for encouragement and hope and, and feeling like we're accomplishing something, and the other we need to keep us moving. So we do need both. And I want to balance the comments I made last night uh, with this other side of it. Uh, because I think that it's true. I'm not saying it just to make us feel good. I'm saying it because I believe it. And I'm thankful for it. And I know that God is not remiss and that He sees the good deeds and the willingness and the service that you people are willing to give. And He doesn't forget that. He knows it. He sees it. He feels it. And he reacts on it. You know, sometimes we get to talking, and I think it's only natural. We think, well, when is God going to take a hand? And when is God going to bless here? And when is God going to do this? I hope before we're done with this few sermons, I say few, I don't know how long it'll take, but I hope that by the time I'm done with this subject, we will see that God already has taken a hand. That He is very involved. And we had better be able to see God in our lives. 
If we can't see him in our lives and we can't see the things that he's doing and already has done, then we need to take a closer look. You know, I can't follow you around, and God doesn't do it in that fashion, and see what decisions you make. We're here to learn wisdom. We're here to learn to make better decisions. And it isn't always that something is necessarily the worst thing that you could do. It might be that there's a better way. It might be that next time you face this same situation, you'll make a better decision than you did the last time. Because as we grow and learn, hopefully our decision-making gets better. I want to cite one example before we get back to where we were last night, and that's in 2 Corinthians 6 and 7. Because 2 Corinthians is a follow-up letter to 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote many things, but what precipitated the letter in the first place, really, was that he heard that there was a terrible sin going on within the congregation, a sin of incest. So he wrote them a very powerful letter and scourged them and stretched them on the rack pretty hard and told them to get that sin out. So we we know that story, but I want to go to 2 Corinthians 6 uh, and just hit the highlights of, of this chapter. He says in, in, in verse 1, They received not the grace of God in vain. God had given the Corinthians his pardon, his mercy, for their sinful lives. It brought them into the church of God, and yet they were a very immoral society like ours is today, and they had to learn some things about the right way to comport themselves in their lives. And then he had to show that the ministry went through a lot as well. They had to learn uh, the same way that the people did. Then he said in verse 14, Be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? Now that echoes somewhat of what I was saying last night. The the two don't mix. How do you mix light and darkness? Can you do that? It's dark, can you turn on a light? Now do you have a mixture of light and dark? No, it's light now. You turn it off, now you don't have a mixture of light and darkness, you have darkness. Unless there's a little bit of light coming in from somewhere else. But the two do not mix. And as he said, you can't serve two masters. It'll be the one way or the other. You can't do both. You can't straddle the fence. What concord has Christ with Belial or Baal or ultimately Satan? Christ and Satan are opposite ends of the spectrum. One is utterly righteous. The other is utterly evil. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? We're in the temple of God to worship God. We have no room for idols. For you are the temple of the living God. There's in print what I was quoting last night. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
Now, he does tell us, in Thessalonians, not to quench the Spirit. Now, if we have the Spirit of God, and we're seeking to walk after the Spirit and serve God, then we don't have room in that temple for idols of self, whether it's idols of wood and metal and plastic, or whether it's self-worship. There's no room in the temple of God for that. That's why we have to get every idol out. And do you realize that every sin you commit is idolatry? Stealing, however trivial something might be, is idolatry. Because God says, don't do that. Love your neighbors yourself. Don't take that which is his. So you are putting what you desire or want to have without just recompense, ahead of God and His law, and that makes it idolatry. Anything, any of the laws, all go back to idolatry because you're putting yourself ahead of God. And yet, you are the temple of God. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be you separate says the Eternal, separate yourself. Now, isn't that what I was saying last night in much louder terminology? Separate yourself. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Now, Satan is ultimately the unclean thing, and he is the ruler of of this present evil world, and he is the one who sets the policies and works through the minds of men to do the things that are being done. This new world order that we're coming is not from the human illuminated ones, it's from the one who calls himself illuminated, who is in total darkness, who is working in the minds of those men to put his new world order in place. And we need to understand that everything on this earth has been, in one form or another, polluted. I mean the air we breathe is polluted. People say, well, I think we'll have lots of industrial stuff in the new world in the millennium. I doubt it. Because by producing this society we have, we pollute the very earth we walk on. And God said, woe to those who pollute the earth in Revelation. Now, I didn't say last night, don't take it wrongly, that we all ought to go out and quit our jobs tomorrow morning. I did say that we came out from the midst of Babylon. We're still on the edge of it. And to one degree or another, We're still in it. We still have to pay taxes. We still have to do certain things. I do believe that God intends, over a period of time, to take us completely away, separate us completely, so that we're not even touching the unclean thing. That is the direction we're moving in. So we need to be very circumspect and be thinking carefully about anything we say or do or eat or anything else as to whether that has been tainted 
by Satan's ways or not. And you have to use individual judgment. You have to think. You have to look. You have to watch for those things. That's why now he gives us a specific time in the year to examine ourselves and to specifically focus on putting sin out of our lives so that we might think about these things. Now, we think about them year-round and should, but right now it's more of a focus and it helps us to really maybe try to do something about it. So he says, touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. So his reception of us has strings. There are always conditions. I will receive you and will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Paul quotes the Old Testament which we go to a lot, a great deal himself. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So there's the direction we're going. Now this could apply to any group in the church anywhere. But our only option in applying it is to ourselves. We need to apply the promise he made, that if we don't touch the end thing, he'll receive us and he'll be a father, and we'll be like sons and daughters to him. And then Paul goes on to emphasize that we have to become like him and put away the flesh and walk in the Spirit. Those are the conditions that God has. And I waxed eloquent for a while about the bride and various things last night about her responding to him and him marrying like kind. But Paul is really saying that here, that we have to be like God is so that Christ can marry like kind. He goes on down and talks about his boldness in speaking to them. But the second letter was written primarily to thank them for following up on the first letter and actually doing something about the sin they found among themselves, or that he ferreted out and told them about. They actually did something about it. So he writes down here in verse 8, For though I made you sorry with a letter, <laughs> I imagine it was pretty sorrowful when that letter was read because it was pretty powerful. I do not repent, though I did repent. He said, I'm not going to repent or try to soften what I said, although I do, or did. For I perceive that the same epistle has made you sorry, though it were but for a season. In other words, I'm not sorry I wrote it, but in a way I'm sorry because it didn't do much good. It only, the effect only lasted a little while and now I'm having to write a second epistle, epistle, partly in thanking you for making some changes, but also I'm sad that you haven't made permanent changes in some respects. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. 
For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. There's godly repentance and there is human repentance. Let's go on and see that. Verse 10, For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, permanent change that will lead to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world works death. The sorrow of the world, I think, could be summarized this way. I'm sorry I got caught. I'll be more careful. You know? I'll keep doing what I've been doing. I'll just be more careful and not get caught at it. That's worldly repentance, which is not repentance at all. It isn't a change in action. It's a change in approach. I'll be more careful. You won't see me do that again. I may do it, but you won't see me. That's what is implied there. So we try to hide. Just as Adam and Eve had worldly repentance. They didn't stand there before God and say, I am so, so sorry. I gave in to temptation. I will never let Satan influence me again. Forgive me, Father. No, they went and put on fig leaves and hid and said, maybe he won't see us. We're going to go back and talk to Satan some more, but maybe he won't see us. That's the difference. For behold, this selfsame thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort. Now, sorrow after a godly sort does what? What carefulness it worked in you. What carefulness. We are to be very, very careful in what we think and do. Very careful when we put our hand out to reach for something that this world produces because we know who's ruling it and we know that something might not appear evil and yet it could be because Satan has put his twist on it and made it look good to us. We cannot trust our judgment. Therefore, we need to read the Scriptures carefully and regularly so that they might, be, they might come to our mind when we start thinking a certain way, and maybe that Scripture then will come to mind. I thought about it last night after I stomped and romped and raved and rared here a little bit. Did I go too far? I don't really think so, especially if I add to it a little bit today and and explain a little more the situation. Because notice several things here that Paul says. Now, he had really climbed all over them. And a lot of them had truly repented and were not going to permit that kind of conduct anymore, nor would they themselves be involved in it anymore. So he said, it may have been hard on you, but look at the carefulness you have now. You think about things before you do them. You determine if they're right or wrong, and hopefully then you have the character not to do the wrong, because wrong can be very tempting, can be very enticing. What carefulness. Yes, what clearing of yourselves. 
You know how it is when maybe you've been thinking wrongly or doing something wrongly and you have a, a real prayer, maybe like David prayed in Isaiah 51 or Daniel did in Daniel 9? And you, you feel good afterwards because you, you opened yourself up to God and you admitted what's wrong with you. Now, sometimes we'll pray and we'll kind of try to hide certain things from God because, you know, we've gotten rid of most of our idols, but maybe we got one or two that we kind of like to keep right here because it's our favorite. But when you really open up and you really vomit it out before God, then you do feel cleansed and cleared of that sin. Much as we should feel if we examine ourselves properly and come to the Passover and we take of that bread and wine of our Savior's body and blood, we should feel cleansed and pure. But if we've not examined ourselves and we've, we've hidden the junk drawer from them and from ourselves perhaps, then we know, yeah, I didn't, I'm not as clean as I'd like to think I am. So then you got seven days to go ahead and clean up the junk drawer. What clearing of yourselves? Yes, what indignation. When we realize we've been wrong, if we have the attitude that God is seeking, we will be indignant, angry, frustrated with ourselves because of what we see in our mind, attitude, and character that should not be there. So he was pointing at this particular specific sin and how they reacted. Yes, what fear? Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. When we find sin in ourselves and in our attitudes, it should create fear. Because we know God holds the keys to life and death, to grace and unmerited pardon, or to sin and death. All right, what fear, yes, what vehement desire. Vehement is a pretty strong word. It means high, strong emotion. Deep feeling. There's mad, there's angry, and then there's vehement anger. God hates sin vehemently. And if we have the attitude of God, when we find sin in ourselves, it should make us truly angry. But that is not always the case, is it? Sometimes, oh, I don't know how to get over that, but... And we mollycoddle it. And we permit it. You know, God says, do something, and we find that in our lives we're doing something else. It should really make us angry. It shouldn't just be ha-da-da-da-da. See, there's the problem that we have to address. That the church should become Laodicean and blah-dee-da-dee-da toward God's law and sin in our lives. What vehement desire, yes, what zeal. A zeal for God. 
What? Revenge. Revenge is a very powerful emotion, isn't it? When you want vengeance and you want to get revenge on somebody, you set your jaw and you purse your lips, and I'm going to take care of that. And when we find sin in ourselves, do we turn to God with a vengeance? Sorry, unhappy, frustrated that we caught ourselves going Satan's way. And it's so easy to slip into it, isn't it? God makes things so comfortable, so easy. I want that. That looks so good. That would taste wonderful right now. Big glob of chemicals full of sugar and, and uh, artificial flavors and sweeteners called ice cream. We love ice cream. But it's, for most of us, hard to make, hard to find good stuff. So we'll go and we'll get the creamiest of the junk. And we can justify it in our mind because that's the best that they make. That one has doesn't have artificial sweeteners. It has real sugar. It doesn't have milk replacer. It has real cream in it. And maybe it does. But if it's not homemade with truly good ingredients, it's full of junk and garbage. But it can taste good, and it can be very easy and very appealing, can it? And, oh, I think I'll just have one. I think I'll have two. Or whatever. Now, there's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol. But there's something about it you have to be careful with. Because as the fellow once said, two beers seems like too much, but three is not quite, or not half enough. After about three, you say, well, pretty good. I think I've only had one. It's so easy to slide down that slope. We have to be very careful. So Paul says, if you have accomplished godly repentance, it's going to work those things in verse 11 in you. We're very careful, we're very against sin, we really want to do everything we can to get rid of it, and we want to examine everything we think, say, and do to be sure that it comes in line with God's way of thinking instead of Satan's. And that's very, very difficult and hard for us to accomplish. So even though in some respects we might be doing well and turning our hearts to God, there's always more room to do better, is there not? And we have to continually work at that to get in line so that we're living by every word of God. And I dare say that if you look into your life and you start examining everything you do and everything you uh, involve yourself with, in thought or in deed, if you examined all the words of God, I'll bet there's not one of us here that wouldn't find something that we're doing that violates 
a verse somewhere. Look at the instruction to men. Look at the instruction to women. Look at the instruction to children. Look at the instruction to church and temple. You're going to find something in there, probably that you were doing contrary to it, and it's going to be hard for you to accept it. Because that's your pet idol. All right, I think that's enough of that since we've used half the sermon up. Let's go back again to Zechariah. Because that's really what stimulated a lot of the comments last night was looking at the first part of the first chapter of Zechariah where he said, don't be like your fathers were. Don't be as the former prophets. I mean, be like those who listened to the former prophets. And I think here in this context, we need to understand this is not just talking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. When these end-time books, like Haggai and Zechariah, make a statement like this, we have to compare the former temple, which was Worldwide Church of God in my view, with what will be the latter temple. And if we are to be building blocks in the latter temple, then we need to be very careful not to repeat the same mistakes that our prophets and preachers and ministers and we as people made in worldwide. Because that is the most direct point of reference here. Zechariah begins to write in the middle of Haggai. And Haggai upbraids us for not being willing to build the temple of God and to do it God's way or to for us wanting to touch the unclean thing, and that the ministry itself would not make a difference between the clean and the unclean. And I saw that happen a lot in the church. That the church itself allowed a lot of things that should not have been. Okay, we had addressed further down than that, but I wanted to temper a few things that I said last night and give them some backup, for that matter, uh, as to why I was as strong as I was, because Paul was the same way, and Zechariah is that way here as well. All right, now, in considering the 70 years, uh, I want to go back to Daniel 9 just a moment here. There's a couple more thoughts occurred to me this morning. Daniel 9, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, direct tie to the book of Esther, of the seed of the Medes, and Haggai then begins in the second year of Darius, as we uh, mentioned last night. In the first year of his reign is when Daniel understood what Jeremiah was writing about, because he realized, hey, we've been here 70 years about, and that... God said he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So, it wasn't just the fall of the city, but it was 70 years in completing a punishment and a desolation. Now, let's consider this. 
We look at the promises of God of good, of former and latter rains. We look at many, many of the things that Isaiah says will happen, the desert blooming as a rose and various things. And I think we've come to understand that those have to happen in a microcosm here at the end time as a light and an example to the world for God's purposes. But hearkening back to what I said at the beginning here, when is God going to take a hand? When is God going to begin to get himself involved? It just seems like he's sitting back and nothing's happening. How long has it been since you read Lamentations 2, if you've come to have that thought? And it's probably crossed all of our minds. And we may have even thought about it quite a bit. When are we going to get the blessings? Because that's what we want the most. Which is natural. I'm not saying that's wrong to want the blessings. But, I think you can go to Lamentations 2 and see how many times God said, I have worked this destruction on the church. I'm the one who scattered you. I'm the one. Let's go back there for a minute. He just goes on and on and on. How has the Eternal covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger? Remember Isaiah 44, I've been quoting quite a bit lately. It says that I'll remove your sins as a cloud. Well, here he says, I've covered you like a cloud in my anger. Now, do you think God's involved or not? And cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and rivered not his footstool in the day of his anger. The Eternal has swallowed up all the habitations of Jacob. Our church homes and now our physical homes. And has not pitied. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has polluted the kingdom of the princes thereof. We've seen it in the church and now we're seeing it right before our eyes in the nation. He has cut off in he has cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the, his enemy or the enemy. He burned against Jacob like a flaming fire which devours round about. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He stood with his right hand as an adversary and slew all that were pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion. He poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was as an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed his strongholds and has increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. And he has violently taken away his tabernacle as if it were of a garden. He has destroyed the places of the assembly, the churches. The Eternal has caused the solemn feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. Went right back into, world, into the world and into Protestantism for the most part and despise in the indignation of his anger the king and the priest. He has cast off his altar, the place of worship. He has abhorred his sanctuary. He has given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. Verse 8, the Eternal has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. Now, do you think God's taken a hand or not? 
It's just a matter of where he is in the process, brethren. Now, you and I don't like Lamentations 2 very much. I like it in that it imparts to me understanding of what has happened to God's people. And it imparts to me understanding of things that I need to change. Because he says the very same thing in Revelation 3 in in terms of the the Laodicean church. I will spew you out as vomit. Now, we don't look upon God by nature as being involved until we see the things we want to see. But how long will his anger continue, and how long will it be when he turns the face that he can't stand to look at us with back to us so that we might walk in the light of his face, as we sing in the psalm in the hymn. Remove our disgrace that we might walk in the light of your face. We sang it the other night, I think, or day. Gordon led that one. A very meaningful song. I hope when we sing those psalms here that we're thinking about the words as we sing them because all those psalms set to music are powerful sermons in themselves and have much to say about God and his relationship with us. It's easy to just follow the melody and sing the words by rote, but we really ought to be thinking about them when we sing them, because that's just like reading the Psalms. I think we'll find more and more testimony as we go through here that God indeed is working very actively in our lives. This has been a very explosive blowing apart in the church, has it not? And God says, I'm I'm the one that's pushing the buttons. I'm the one doing this to the church. So he's very actively involved in our lives. And the reason that he has been doing this is to lead us to repentance, is it not? To cause us to turn from our lackadaisical, worldly ways and are sitting on the fence and are rubbing shoulders with the world to get us away from it and to turn us wholeheartedly to Him. So He's very involved in this process. And I think that He is very involved in what we see happening in our country today, physically. We have sinned as a nation greatly. And the judgment is beginning to come upon us. But he is very, very involved in it. So if we're going to see God in our lives in what we hope is a benevolent way, then we also have to see him involved in our lives in this not-so-comfortable way. Because godly sorrow does lead us to repentance, as we just read in Second Corinthians 7. The more like God we are, ultimately, the more inclined he's going to be to finally turn his face and bless us. Now this is already, what, the third day 
of unleavened bread. Third day. Are we going to let it pass? Now, we got a problem. We just read that problem here in Lamentations 2, didn't we? But God is actively doing this to the church, and He's almost destroyed it at this point, or allowed Satan to, but Satan is God's servant. He can't help himself. He loves to destroy, and God puts him to it. So it happens. I call on you before God not to let these days just slip aside. But let's make them count. I want the destruction to stop. I want the trouble to go away. Now, I know that through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God, and that trials come us upon us to help make us righteous, but that's why this huge one is on us. I just just occurred to me that the real reason nobody wanted to go out and gather up wood on Monday. Why didn't I think of it? You don't want to waste that day. You want to spend a goodly part of that day in prayer, studying the Word of God, and finding out in what ways that you may be imbibing in Satan's program without even realizing it. That had to be the answer to that. Well, I'm pulling our leg a little bit. (laughs) But really, when we think about it, let's not let these days go by. You know, we, we, we have in past years kept them sort of But did we make real changes? That's the key. God will keep the pressure on until we make the real changes we need to make. So there there comes a time when we can't just do these things because we're supposed to. There comes a time when we get the pedal to the metal and the wheel to the road and make a difference. And that's what we're here to do. Wouldn't it be nice at the end of this seven days for all of us to be able to reflect upon them and say, I really worked at it and I made some progress. I made some changes in my attitude, in my approach, in my relationship with God. I prayed more fervently. I prayed more time with more energy for his help, his strength, his power to change, to grow, to overcome. I really did put some effort into it. And wouldn't it be nice to go to God and say, Father, you know, I've been diddling around with this attitude for a long, long time. And I made some progress during this time. Things are better now than they were before. I'm doing better. 
and him to say, you're right. You are doing better. You did work at it. You worked at it harder this year than you did last year. You actually decided, I will make some changes. Is there some point of doctrine that is a sticking point with you that you are stubborn and stiff-necked about? Is there any one point of conduct in life that you want to continue that you are stiff-necked and rebellious about? Each one of us has to examine his own psyche, his heart, his mind, his feelings, his emotions, and determine what are those things that we have held back. Because we've changed a lot, haven't we? I think I can honestly say that we've changed a lot. We really have. I see a lot of difference in you than in what I saw nine years ago. There's been a lot of change here. Well, that's good. But... Are there a few things we might have been holding back or issues we just simply don't want to address and find the whole truth about? Things that we can, nah, that can't be. Without honestly seeing what all the scriptures say about that particular thing? Are we so narrow that we form our opinions and our doctrines on one or two scriptures without examining those in the light of all the other scriptures that have bearing on it? Because God does give here a little, there a little. And sometimes this verse will modify that one somewhat so that you don't get, you know, he'll give you part of the picture here, part of the picture there, and part of it over here. And you have to put all those scriptures together and get the whole picture. And before you do that, you're making decisions based on partial knowledge. Now, doesn't God say that we should seek wise counsel? This is the wisest counsel there is, is all these words. Put them all together. That's what I had to do when it came to that Passover matter. Not just act on one or two things that I read, but I had to go through the whole Bible and find everything I could find about it. Put it all together to come up with what I hope was the right decision. There may be a thing or two that modify it somewhere down the road at this point. I don't know for sure. Could be. I'm not suggesting that, but you never know. Maybe something wasn't seen in the exact right light. Maybe it wasn't translated just right. Who knows? We have to keep examining God's Word daily to see whether these things are so or not. And we'll be real quick to jump on one thing, because that fits us. We like that. But something else that might change our conduct that we don't like, we might not be willing to look at the whole issue. We'll only take part of it. Human beings are prone to do that. We want to continue in what we want to do. That's why birds of a feather flock together. We will tend to seek out those people who have the same problems we do, same attitudes we have, same weaknesses we have, because we can then feel justified and comfortable in them. 
We're not going to seek out those who are strong in the area we're weak because that might reflect on us and our vanity, and it might also create a need to change. So if you're weak in an area, you need to seek out people who are strong in that particular area. Sometimes you need to seek out birds that have different feathers than you do in order to correct something. You, you need help. You don't need somebody who will agree with you and pat you on the head and say, it's okay, dearie. I have the same problem. Let's both have a beer. Or whatever. Or a pity sandwich. Whatever you choose to have with your little discussion among yourselves. Why is it that God says that there will be ravening wolves creep into the flock? Who do they pick on? The ones they can see that have a weakness or a problem or an area that is difficult for them or that they're having trouble understanding. So people will go to those people and they will seek to influence them. They rarely seek to influence those who are strong. They pick on the weak. Wolves have that tendency. Lions have that tendency. Somebody has contrary doctrine. They will seek out somebody that they think they might be able to convince. They will not seek out someone generally who will say, I don't want to hear that. I don't agree with that. Get that out of here. You know, even wolves can repent and become lambs. It is incumbent upon every one of us to change what we need to change. If there ever was a wolf in the flock, it was Paul, or Saul. And he gave up being Saul and became Paul. But he had to be struck down. You know, and sometimes things happen in our lives that are not good. And we had better examine ourselves and find out what... God might be trying to show us by some particular thing that might happen. Because if God numbers your hair, He also sees what you're thinking and doing. And He is able to create circumstances that you should pay attention to. So we find here in Zechariah, which came out of the middle of Haggai, with Zechariah questioning, How long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against whom you've had frustration, indignation, anger and wrath these 70 years? Now God built worldwide, but there was a certain level of frustration, I'm sure, because worldwide was ensconced in and a part of the world, even though we were trying to come out of the world and those scriptures were read to us, and we came out somewhat. We didn't really come out of it. 
and we imbibed very much in many of the things of this world that we're now coming to see should not be. And it lasted about 70 years. And the Eternal answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. So the angel that communed with me said to me, Cry you, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. They're, they're my pride to be, but I'm very jealous of them. Now, it might not seem like it when everything's falling apart, but it's there. And the jealousy is leading to his seeking to correct us, to get us into right paths so that his jealousy subsides and his love shows through. Even his jealousy is in love. You know, he says he chastens every son whom he loves. And that is how he shows his love, is by chastening us. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. He says in Zephaniah 1, he didn't like those that are at ease, resting on their oars. For I was but a little displeased. He wasn't greatly displeased with worldwide until we dived off into more worldliness and Laodiceanism. I was a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. I think when Tkachas came in after Herbert Armstrong died, and they started going into wholesale paganism, they moved forward the affliction. God had been a little displeased with Herbert Armstrong. He had been a little displeased with us. And then he got very displeased. And you've seen what happened. Therefore, thus says the Eternal, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, says the Eternal of hosts, and a line shall be stretched upon Jerusalem. I think both the church and physically. The abomination of desolation occurs in Daniel 9 and Matthew 24. It will be to a physical temple that we be desolated, and we're to flee from it before they desolate it. But he says, my house will be built in it. Remember, this is coming out of the middle of Haggai, where it says the people said, oh, it's not time to do that. We don't have time to do that. Or this isn't the right place. This isn't the right time. We shouldn't be doing that. You might have to rethink that when you consider all God has to say about it. I know I've been doing some rethinking on it, because there was a time when I would have said, oh, we don't need to build a physical temple the Jews can do that in Jerusalem, and they can be desolated there. Well, no. If the New World Order, with their Edomite Jew friends, build a temple there, they're not going to want to desolate it. It's already in Satan's hands. The only one there that Satan is going to be concerned about is the temple of the true God. His true church, and where they worship. He hates us with a passion. When he's cast down to that last time in Revelation 12, he's not going to go over and try to destroy the Jews. He's going to come after us. Immediately. He says, Cry yet, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Eternal shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. Now he's blown us apart, but he says, I'm going to choose you again. 
And he does say Jerusalem was built in its own place. Back in Zechariah 12, I think it is. It's been built in the wrong place by the wrong people as a false Jerusalem. A counterfeit. And Satan is a great counterfeiter. Who would argue with that? Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, behold, four horns. And I said to the angel that talked with me, What be these? And he answered, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Although we've seen the church scattered, the answer showed me four carpenters. Then said I, What come these to do? And he spoke, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. But these are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah, to scatter it. So God used human, well, spiritual emissaries and human ones to destroy the church, but he's going to have people come together to rebuild. So there's a great deal of encouragement here that we see the desolation. He said, how long these 70 years have elapsed? I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, where do you go? And he said, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth and what is the length. What's left, spiritually speaking, of the church? And this may have to do with the physical as well. Behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him. And he said to him, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, says the Eternal, will be to her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. Ho, ho, come forth, flee from the land of the north. That's reference to Babylon, says the Eternal. For I spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, says the Eternal. So when we see the temple in Jerusalem, Zion, Hebrews 12, scattered, then God says, flee from Babylon. Notice he puts it more clearly in verse 7. Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the eternal of hosts, after the glory which has he sent me to the nations which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. That's not talking about the Jews. That's talking about the spiritual Jews. It's talking about the church. He's written off the physical Jews for now. Not until the millennium, when they repent of the great white throne judgment, will they come back into play. But the spiritual Jews, it is not going to be some rabbis who are going to be over the tribes of Israel in the kingdom of God. It's going to be the twelve apostles. <coughs> not physical Jews. Most of the apostles, if not all, were Benjamites. Not even physical Jews. And they'll be over the tribes of Israel. Now we can go back to Isaiah 4, where it says seven women will take hold of one man, and perhaps we should here for a moment, because I'm leading up to something. Uh, Isaiah 4, speaking of the time, end of chapter 3, your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in the war. And her gates shall lament and mourn, and she, being desolate, shall sit upon the ground. Speaking of the church. Speaking of the nation secondarily, but first of all, the church. The daughters of Zion, as it says back in verse 16. Daughters 
are equal to churches in prophecy. And in that day, seven women, seven churches, shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and our own apparel, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. So, the seven women or seven churches in the end time are under reproach. And there's coming a time when they will want that reproach lifted and removed from them. So they will approach a man whom God will put in a position to have that taken away. And that day shall the branch, and I think that's referring to Zerubbabel, ultimately it refers to Christ, but in physical type, perhaps to Zerubbabel, because it's in many places. We won't go there. We've been there before. In that day shall the branch of the eternal be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. It shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. When the Eternal shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. Now, we've been being judged with severe judgment and burning. The Eternal will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense, and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. God is going to put a canopy over that will control the weather, blot out the heat of the sun, and make an Edenic condition, as he says in Isaiah 51, the Garden of God and the Garden of Eden he's going to give to us. He's going to restore that which was taken away because of sin. He's going to remove our sin as a cloud in one day. And he will restore these conditions. Now, before going on, I want to recount some things that have occurred, because as I said at the beginning, everyone in the church needs to see God in their lives. I need to see God in my life, and you need to see God in your life. Let's begin to rehearse and understand all over again why we're here. I think all of us have probably talked about, and I've talked about it with a lot of people over the years, where they would say, you know, I began to be called, or I came across the plain truth at a certain age, and this, this is the way it happened. And we all like to tell our story about how we began to come into the truth. And I've always found those stories very interesting, because they vary from person to person. And it's always interesting to hear how a person began to be involved. But in telling those stories... I think most of us could look back in our lives and say, well, you know, I think God began to work with me even clear back here. I've heard some of you say that. But I could, now that I look back, I can see how God did certain things in my life. I may not have gotten the plain truth till certain years, but I can see where 
certain things happened in my life that brought me to the point that I was ready to receive it or that I came in contact with someone and there it was. Because we can all look back on our lives because we're familiar with them and maybe see God's hand there. I've heard many, many people say that. Well, I've had to do the same thing. And I think the first time that I... I mean, we can all look back. I can see why my parents might have been called way back in the early 50s when I was a small child because I needed a head start. If I was ever going to overcome and be anything uh, with God in my life, uh, some of you can pick it up, you know, and you repent easy and, and you don't need very long. But I've needed a long, it's been a long road, road hard road of hope for me. I think I can say that, and I'm not just saying it tongue-in-cheek. I know me pretty well. So, there are elements back there where I can see God began to work with my parents. But the first time that I had a very stark reality and something that was um, perhaps crucial was when I was at the beginning of my junior year in college. That time I'd, I was, had been made junior class president and usually the student officers from, uh, especially from junior on up, they have in mind that they might at some point be involved in the ministry or whatever. So that was an indication that they were thinking favorably toward me in terms of where I might eventually wind up, okay? But shortly after that junior year began, I never led songs in church or given a sermonette or anything of that nature at that point. But I had a dream one night. Very, very powerful. Most of my dreams are gobbledygook, but that one was the kind that makes you kind of sweat and cringe. And it was very vivid. And it was short. And what it said was, if you go into the ministry you're likely going to die, be a martyr. And the question was there, will you accept those conditions? And I said, yes, I accept that, in the dream. It was a very short while after that that Ron Kelly said, uh, hey, why don't you come with me and lead songs and services tomorrow down in San Diego? Okay. And it wasn't, I think the next speaking list came out, I had a sermonette in Los Angeles with Rod Meredith sitting there looking at me all the way through it and writing down things, scaring me half to death. Because he always gave you a grade when it was over. I was figuring on a B. I think he gave me a B or a B minus, as I recall, and I Although I certainly thought it was worth an A, uh, I was happy that he had given me a B, <laughs> if you knew him at that time. Anyway, uh, I had that dream just before I began to be involved in a formal way uh, with sermonettes. So I think God gave me the option there. He says, if you want to be in the ministry, you're likely going to have to die. 
And if you're not in the ministry, maybe not. But in the dream, I made, I think, the correct choice. And silence then for many, many, many years. But circumstances worked it out where I was, although we were living in, in and based in Alaska at the time, I got involved with a business venture in southern Nevada and uh, Pahrump and Las Vegas. We had mobile home dealerships and then a subdivision in Beaver Dam, Arizona, of all places, where we were putting uh, manufactured homes as well. And I went down to manage that particular operation since it needed to be hands-on and lived in Beaver Dam off and on between trips to Alaska for, I guess, a couple of years. And uh, I had gotten involved with John Reitenball, the Church of the Great God, after Worldwide began to break up, and he started it in 1991, I guess it was. Or, yeah, beginning of 92. No. Yeah, first piece was 92. I didn't... Uh, I was getting involved with him, and uh, I thought, thought he was headed in the right direction and giving very good sermons. But one night there in Beaver Dam, I th it must have been about 1994 or early 94, just before I moved back to Alaska to stay, I thought. Uh, and I was waking up one morning, and I, I don't... It's hard to know if you were awake or asleep, but right in that, as you're waking up, mode. And I had a very powerful, again, vivid dream. And the essence of it was this. I want you to prepare a place for my people, and it will be near here. Scared me. Who, me? You talking to me? Who is this? Uh, why me? What's this about? I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I wasn't in the ministry at that point. I was pursuing my own business ventures. Uh, I was involved with a church, but I was out there in the desert pretty much by myself. I'd drive down to Anaheim almost oh, weekends, I guess, to be at services on Sabbath, but uh, kind of on my own out there. Now, who, me, why, what? Uh, I, I questioned it. But it was very powerful. And it kind of came a second time. I want you to build a place or prepare a place for my people, and it's near here. I've told some of you this, and I don't like to to mention these things very often, but I think you need to fully comprehend the whole story of why we're sitting in a place like Cane Beds, Arizona, of all places, and think that this is an important area to God. Now, I felt that God got involved in my life at that point. I didn't understand why or how or all the detail of it, but, but I really did seriously question why me, but at the same time it was so powerful, I said, yes, Lord, whatever, <laughs> you know, uh, I'll do that. What, what, what do you want me to do? And there was a guy that was trying to do a subdivision down above Kingman on the south side of the Grand Canyon there above Kingman. And he wanted to trade land for a bunch of houses. Of course, I couldn't afford to buy the houses, but I thought, well, maybe something to do with that subdivision because he just called me the day before, wanted to make a deal. Man, I better 
jump in the truck and head down to the kingdom. Got down there and found the subdivision and nothing there. Now, on weekends, I didn't go to Anaheim. I would go up in the mountains to get away from the subdivision and customers that would come because I didn't want to deal with them on the Sabbath or even to tell them to go away. Just be gone. You know, there were times I would go up to Zion, but it wasn't that far because it was a beautiful place. Now, here's how bright I am. Never began to occur to me that that might be a significant spot. I just thought it was a beautiful part of God's creation. And man, everything's named after God. This is neat. Never occurred to me that it was anywhere near what God might want. I just want you to see God's hand in something that wasn't out of my brilliance in any fashion or form, whatever. But if God wanted something to done and it was to be in this area, then it would be his project and his glory. I was just a human emissary to help work out the details and to do the physical work involved. But I, as I looked around, I didn't see an answer. Didn't stumble on by myself, the scriptures, or anything else. And in time, over a few weeks, I guess I kind of put it in the back of my mind because I couldn't find anything that seemed to relate with the dream or vision, whatever it was. So I went on back to Alaska and built on a, a room in on an addition that winter, winter of 94, 95, I guess it was. And John Reitenbaugh and John Reed were going to come up that summer, they told me, and visit with us. So I got everything finished up on the house. And they came and visited and left. Went to the Peace of Tabernacles that year, and John's sitting there at the board meeting. They'd put me on the board by that time. And uh, I said, boy, we're swamped here in the office in Charlotte. And he said, I really need to get some help here in the office. And I'm thinking, well, I have experience in some of that stuff, but I sure don't want to go down there. And uh, he didn't ask, but he just kept moaning. <laughs> and I finally was ridden with guilt. <clears throat> I was happy to be back in Alaska, and I didn't want to be fully involved in the ministry again. They had begged me to give sermonettes down there in Anaheim, and I said, no, I don't want to do that. Been there, done that, I'm, I'm finished with that. Don't ever want to be back in the ministry. And they kept after me. Finally, well, all right, I'll give a sermonette. But it kind of started there. But I was out of the ministry at that time. And with good reason. So, he finally laid a guilt trip on me and I said, I suppose I could come down if you want. I think I could help. So we went to lunch after the board meeting after service that morning, and and uh, he hired me. So I, he said, well, come on down to Charlotte and go to work. So we went back home to Alaska, and that was the feast. And I decided, well, you know, I, I probably ought to be there by the first of the year, first of January. So I set that as a goal, and we couldn't get everything organized in the house, sold and all that in time. So Marla stayed up there, and toward the end of December, I jumped in the pickup with a load of junk. But, you know, to keep me going, and uh, showed up 1st of January in John's office. Go to work.
Well, it began a series of events almost immediately that brought us here. About two weeks after I got there, I had again a very powerful dream. And this one was in regards to um, primarily Zerubbabel in chapter 4 of Zechariah and who that might be. Now, Herbert Armstrong had told me, as I recounted to you, that he and his son were Zerubbabel and Joshua. And I think that in a minor sense, in a, in a latter temple, that certainly was true. And they both fit the mold of what these two men were to do. But turns out worldwide was destroyed, and the church has to be rebuilt. So they were not the final fulfillment of that, if they fulfilled it in any way at all, and I think they probably did. But this dream was that a certain individual would be Zerubbabel. And I was commissioned to be a help. And it said, will you do this? And I said, if he does, I will. I'm not going to give you all the detail. I don't think we need to use names here or whatever at this point. But uh, God, I think, was saying to me, here's a man I want to use. Will you help him? And I said, yes, in the dream. So we began studying Haggai and Zechariah very carefully. Uh, because Herbert Armstrong had put me on that when he had said that in 81, and here it was 96. And this had been forcefully brought to my mind again. So we went back restudying all these scriptures to find out what in the world is this all talking about. And then is when I gave the first sermon in February, I think, of 96, uh, about Haggai and how the temple has to be built and God is going to call a remnant together and have a couple of leaders and there to do that. So then I went to Chicago for Passover that year in 96. And on what we now understand would be the holy day, we'd had Passover. And the next day, which normally, you know, you ate pizza and hamburgers, stuffed yourself the last time uh, before unleavened bread started, I was working on a sermon that afternoon. It was warm. The window was sun shining in the window there in the room. I got drowsy, so went to sleep. This would have been the day after Passover, before what we then thought was the first holy day, but in actuality, would have been the first holy day. Okay? And as I was waking up, these two maps appeared in my mind. One was with the southwest United States, with Utah as the center of it. And the other was of the Middle East, primarily of the nation of Israel. Strange thing to have those two maps put up as if they were a mirror image of each other. Like you were looking at the same map. The one was a copy, if you will, of the other. But they were alike. And I saw on the maps Bear Lake up here on the Idaho-Utah border and the Sea of Galilee over in the Middle East. Very similar. If someone were to blindfold you and drop you out of an airplane, the Sea of Galilee in the Middle East, and you could see it, 
and they were to do the same thing with you at Bear Lake up here on the Idaho border, and you were to take the blindfold off, if you didn't already know both those areas, you wouldn't know which was which. The terrain around them, the hills around them, the barrenness, the water, the shape even, are essentially the same. It's an amazing thing when you've seen both, and I have. So anyway, saw the Sea of Galilee, saw uh, the, the Jordan Rift Valley with the mountains, saw the mountain range down the middle of Utah, saw off to the right uh, Ammon and Moab, Jordan, over here, Moab, Utah, saw Petra, saw Zion, saw Dead Sea, saw Salt Lake. Saw Sodom and Gomorrah, saw Las Vegas and Los Angeles. Saw Gulf of Aqaba, saw Gulf of California. It's as if they were the same. Maps disappeared. Now that was a strange happening. I got back to Charlotte and three or four of us there began going through the scriptures about... Uh, oh, oh, did I say Peter and Zion? <laughs> Key issues. Yeah, I guess I did. Began to study Zion. Because a week or two after I got back to Charlotte, as I recall, I didn't date it, but had another dream in the night. It wasn't a vision type, but a dream. And that was of a group of people walking down a mountain range. And I was with them. And they could go down into Petra, or they could go down into Zion. And we went down into Zion. Hmm. Then it seemed like there was a safe passage between the two. The time I questioned, well, does that mean that we're going to use both places? Or does that mean that it's safe to forget the Petra idea and go to Zion? And I concluded over the years that that was the case, the latter. So we did an in-depth study of Zion throughout the Scriptures. We did an in-depth study of the geography of this area, and Utah, and it's particularly around Zion, because that was the focal point of both the maps and that dream later. We studied about the stairs that the Song of Songs mentions, and we found that there was a geological staircase out here that went up, because it says Christ would meet his bride in the springtime in the secret places of the stairs. So, dozens and dozens of things like that came together, and some of you know some of the story. So it began to be obvious that this was on close latitude to that Jerusalem over there. It became obvious that the place names were the same. Nearly everything in Zion was named after God. Nearly everything in the Grand Canyon was named after Beelzebub and Satan. You had the heights of Zion and you had the pit right here together with a stairway out of it. So we began to realize that this was a very important area. But God had His name written all over it. Now you're beginning to get a glimpse of why I began looking out this direction. Made quite a few visits out here to see 
because I remember that God had said to prepare a place and it's near here. And then I have this dream in Chicago a couple years later that says, Zion. And duh, Beaver Dam and Zion are very far apart. Was this all coincidence? Or are these the dreams of a madman? You know, I had to think about that. And so did those people around that were studying the whole deal. Is this happenstance? Or does the Bible and do the place marks and the geographical things match? We have the red rocks here. Got the red rocks in Petra and around that area. There were so many matches, it was unbelievable, between here and there. Now, we studied this out for months, looking at all the scriptures and so on, to see if we were maybe onto something. And if God wanted a place prepared, we began studying these scriptures in Zechariah uh, 2, where it says that Jerusalem has to be built as villages without walls and men and cattle there, and how God would protect it, and so on. And when we got to that section here in Zechariah 2, is what launched me onto this how we came to begin to look at this area instead of somewhere else or instead of the Middle East. Because God seemed to be directing in that path. And everything worked, lined up, and looked right. And the more we studied, the more it became so. See you tomorrow night.